Hello and welcome to the third in our Markets in Conflict podcast series brought to you by Argus Media, in which we take an in-depth look at the commodity market impacts and implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. My name is Jim Washer, I'm the Editor-in-Chief here at Argus, and I'm joined for today's discussion by two of my most experienced and knowledgeable colleagues, Matt Drinkwater, who is our Manager of Gas and Power Analysis and an expert on European and indeed global gas markets, and John Gawthrop, who is editor of Argus Eurasia Energy and an authority on Russian and wider Eurasian energy trade and energy politics. So with our two podcasts so far, we've looked at the broad global economic impact of the war in Ukraine and at the strategic implications of the conflict for China. Today, we're going to focus on Europe and on Europe's dilemma. Some people are even saying it's a trilemma, which is the conflict between its desire to take political and economic action against Russia in support of Ukraine and its deep rooted decades long dependence on Russian energy and in particular Russian gas. Now, Europe wants to hit Russia where it hurts, which means cutting off revenues from oil and gas exports. But it can't do this without hurting its own economies and the living standards of its own citizens. who will have to pay more for energy, for transport, even for food and who will have to adapt to anxieties over energy access that are all too familiar to people in other parts of the world. Europe has been trying to adapt, trying to find ways to access other energy sources, but it is difficult to make major, meaningful changes quickly, and it's continued paying billions to Moscow in particular for Russian gas. So how does this dilemma get resolved? Let's bring in the experts. And John, I'd like to start with you. I've sketched out some of the basic challenges. How well do you think Europe has handled this crisis so far? Well, I think the political response has been pretty robust and, broadly speaking, fairly united. Sanctions against Russia, primary goal is to punish Russia for the invasion of Ukraine, but also it's about breaking Europe's dependence on Russian oil and gas. I think there's been a a recognition now, after a, a little bit of initial hesitation of the need to do this quite urgently. It doesn't make sense for Europe to rely for its energy supplies or for a substantial part of its energy supplies on a country that's launched an all-out war on a neighbour and adopted a generally threatening posture towards most of Europe. Obviously, the approach has been necessarily pragmatic, the European approach, focusing on achievable targets like phasing out oil imports. Not an easy thing to do, but feasible. And there's been a willingness to compromise with reluctant partners like Hungary, for example. It has been a bit of a steep learning curve, I think, for Europeans, but politicians are adapting to the new reality fairly rapidly now. Quite early on during the war with Ukraine, Germany's economy minister, Robert Habeck, dismissed the idea that Russia might use gas supply to put pressure on Europe on the grounds that it would make Gazprom an unreliable supplier. But when Russia recently reduced Nord Stream pipeline flows, ostensibly because of technical problems, Habeck was pretty swift to call out Russia for cutting supply deliberately to disrupt the market and push up prices. Matt? It's been, I think, as you say, quite interesting watching the progression of European thinking as a lot of these kind of sacred cows of the energy markets. The old adage that Gazprom would always be a reliable supplier has gone out of the window. And there's been this huge change in European attitudes towards the energy relationship. But there's one issue that I think that the EU has managed to stumble into 
by broadcasting the fact that as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Europe is now looking to reduce its reliance on Russian gas to these very aspirational targets to cut uh, Russian imports by two thirds this year and to phase out Russian imports entirely by 2027. And of course, this is something that is by definition inimical to Russian interests. And so there's a certain perhaps naivety that announcing these plans wouldn't elicit some kind of, of response from Russia. We can argue about whether Russia's weaponization of gas started with the reduction in Nord Stream flows or with the demand for ruble payments or with its failure to fill European storage facilities it controls in Europe last summer, which had left the supply demand balance in Europe very tight heading into last winter. But this kind of rhetoric from Europe has, I think, contributed to escalate the situation. Okay, you've touched on this both a little bit here, but let's look at this in a bit more depth, which is what are the challenges now for the EU for its plans for coping without Russian oil and gas? And particular two things is how does this affect these very sort of serious and ambitious plans it's got for reducing emissions? And where do we think gas and LNG are going to fit into this? Matt, do you want to address that one first? One of the things to bear in mind is, of course, there's a huge amount of European industry, particularly in Germany, that has been very dependent on this reliable and cheap supply of Russian gas. And switching away from that is going to cost a lot of money. It's going to require a lot of investment and it requires securing supplies from elsewhere to fill in the gap. And that's one of the big headaches that European buyers have had in trying to negotiate additional supply is squaring that with Europe's decarbonisation targets by 2030. So if you're in the position of a German gas supplier and you're looking at trying to sign up to supply from one of the suppliers that's been touted as Gata, Gata's interest is in signing long-term contracts that may well last beyond the time that you think that we're going to be consuming gas in Europe. So that's a big headache because that's a big commitment and it's a big liability that the buyer may not be able to fulfil over the entire duration of the long-term contract. So initially, a lot of these importers have been looking to the US. The contract structure there is different because you pick up the cargoes free on board at the liquefaction facility. So if you want to bring them to Europe, you can, but if the demand isn't there in Europe, you can sell them elsewhere in the world. And that at least gives people a way to manage that risk. But the Gattery model tends to be to sell cargoes delivered. And if you don't need the cargo, then you're in a bit of a bind, which is why we think that we've not seen a, a lot of progress in those kinds of discussions with Gattery in particular. But it's a big headache for anyone who's trying to fill in for this loss of Russian supply. And of course, all of this investment in new infrastructure, we also have to balance that with the decarbonisation agenda. And so there's a lot of talk about making sure that all of this infrastructure is going to be hydrogen ready so that we can neatly transition from natural gas into hopefully renewably generated hydrogen, or so-called green hydrogen. But there's a lot of doubts, uh, particularly amongst green parties in Europe, that that's actually what will happen. And they're concerned that this will just result in more fossil gas lock-in. So at the same time that we're trying to extricate ourselves from one relationship, we're having to navigate, trying to get into these new new relationships. And it's very awkward trying to navigate through all of these competing policy objectives. I think the picture on the oil side of things is probably a little more straightforward in that there is supply available 
The question is, how is everything going to balance out? The oil embargo announced by the EU hasn't really kicked in yet. An awful lot of Russian crude and products are still flowing into Europe. And crude supply is supposed to end by the end of this year, apart from those countries that have exemptions and products in the early part of next year. It remains to be seen quite how global flows will rebalance, but I think we'll see obviously a lot more Russian crude, Russian products perhaps too, heading east than has been happening in the past. And there'll be a readjustment of, uh, of global flows. At the same time, we do have countries in Central Europe that are heavily dependent on Russian oil supplied through the Druzhba pipeline system. These have managed to secure exemptions from the EU embargo, so Hungary, Czech Republic and Slovakia. On the other hand, we see that there are countries in that part of the world that uh, were once equally dependent on Russian oil that have shown that it is possible to diversify. So Poland, for example, I think has led the way there. The share of Urals in the throughputs of the country's biggest refiner is now about 50%, down from 70% in 2020. So they've moved away from predominantly taking Russian crude by pipeline to now having quite a wide slate of seaborne crude alternatives. So they take oil from the Middle East, uh, from the US, from the North Sea, so they've shown, in a sense, that it can be done. It's been easier for Poland, which has ready access to seaborne imports, or more ready access than some of the Central European countries. But even landlocked countries like Hungary, Slovakia, Czech Republic, they do have access to seaborne crude through third countries. When it comes to products, the main problem facing Europe is uh, diesel Russia accounts for about 50% of Europe's diesel imports, and it needs those imports because its own refineries can't produce enough diesel to meet demand because they fail to keep up with the shift away from gasoline towards diesel use in passenger cars that started in the 90s. Also, refinery closures have, have played a role here, reducing European capacity to produce diesel. So with Russia out of the picture a year or so from now, Europe ends up being much more reliant on Middle Eastern, Indian, and to a lesser extent, US supplies of diesel. And clearly there's competition from other markets for these supplies. So the situation will require quite careful management and a combination of imports from other sources, possibly attempts to increase local capacity to produce diesel. But the European refining sector isn't necessarily geared up to make that swift transition. And certainly one positive factor in all this is that European diesel demand is declining as drivers move away from diesel passenger cars, but diesel will continue to dominate in the road haulage sector for the foreseeable future. So that's going to be a particular challenge for European consumers. You mentioned exemptions in there, John, and that's kind of leads me on to the next thing I wanted to ask about, which is the politics of all this, which is far from straightforward in Europe. You have to have consensus on some of this action. You've got sort of countries like Hungary that have been difficult. One can argue about the reasons for this, but that's has created a complication for EU policymaking. There's a whole question of how this plays out at amongst voters, you know, the sort of consumer level dealing with higher energy prices. What's your assessment of the political challenges for the EU well, securing consensus has been a problem, although in many ways Europe did present quite a united front, the EU presented quite a united front in its determination to, to use sanctions as, as a tool against Russia and also as a means of, of reducing dependence on Russian supply. The main 
opponent to measures that were proposed from Brussels and generally supported across the bloc was Hungary. And the opposition of Hungary, I think it was put forward as we face an insurmountable infrastructure problem. We simply can't stop importing Russian oil. We can't diversify. It's not actually true. This isn't the case. Hungary has relatively easy access to alternative supplies of Russian oil. It can be delivered from the Mediterranean market through Croatia, through the Adria pipeline. It's not to say that they could make a switch to completely turning away from Russian oil overnight. Refineries need to be adapted, pipeline systems need to be tweaked, but essentially the basic infrastructure is there. And Hungarian controlled refineries, uh, Hungarian company Mol also operates the uh, main refinery in Slovakia. They already run non-Russian crude. We've spoken as a company to insiders in the Hungarian industry who's, who, who've told us that the government has erected, if you like, artificial obstacles here. They've overplayed the extent to which uh, it's difficult for Hungary to change. And this is for economic reasons. They don't want to forego cheap Russian oil. Urals is very cheap at the moment. Hungarian oil company Mole has been enjoying record margins this year, or, or at least over the past few months. Uh, and there's a political angle as well. The Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, is almost unique among European leaders in apparently having a desire to maintain cordial relations with Putin. But I think overall, Europe is probably much more united now than it was before the invasion of Ukraine in its approach to Russia. Before the war, you had Poland and the Baltic states consistently arguing for many years about the need to scale back dependence on Russian energy, Russian gas in particular, while countries like Germany, Italy, Austria, and Hungary for that matter, argued or insisted that gas, particularly when it came to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, should be kept strictly separate from politics. And in this, they were actually at odds with the EU, with Brussels, which had warned pretty consistently over the years of the dangers of over-dependence on, on Russian gas and had done its best to block Nord Stream 2, in fact. The EU also played quite a big role in promoting the idea of opening up a new supply corridor from the Caspian region, something which is now operational and allowing Azeri gas to flow to southern Europe. Of course, now Nord Stream 2 is dead in the water and no one, with the possible exception of Hungary, sees Russian energy supply as something to be treated in isolation from Russia's wider actions. So I think, uh, yeah, we've seen a sort of, uh, as I think we've alluded to already, an evolution towards a kind of unity on the European side. You raised some interesting points there, John, about some lessons that can be learned. We'll come to that in a second, but there's one other question I want to ask first, which is the EU doing enough on the demand side here? It's a common criticism when we're looking at energy policy making globally, in fact. But is it doing enough to deal with what could happen with demand, with the need to maybe introduce measures that will have some effect on energy saving? The IA suggested some sort of return to some of the things we saw in the 1970s. I just wonder, maybe Matt, you know, you've got some thoughts on this. Do you think Brussels is doing enough here? The EU included energy saving as part of its uh, very ambitious plan to try and cut Russian gas imports this year. But part of the problem that Brussels has is that this realm of policy, it's really the responsibility of member states to implement. And all that the EU can do is provide a framework or try and to inspire greater movement on the, on the national level. And we aren't seeing a huge amount of action or of, in particular communication from the national government. 
arguments about the need to conserve energy. Now, that may be because some governments think that prices are already having a, an effect, which they are. We're seeing reduced gas demand from large industrial consumers, particularly where they're parts of groups that have manufacturing capacity in lower price parts of the world, so the US. We're seeing an increase in investment in energy saving measures in industry in response to these high prices. But in terms of the public, and of course, with gas demand, space heating and water heating, major components of demand, particularly when we move into the winter, there just doesn't seem to be much of a public awareness campaign of both the need to conserve energy and measures that households could reasonably take to conserve energy. Prices are going up. There are lots of headlines in the papers about rising energy bills. But because a lot of these rises have come in during the summer when energy demand is lower, there is a risk that we may end up in the winter and people are all of a sudden hit with incredibly high energy bills during the uh, the peak and winter demand, and they won't have taken the measures that they might have been able to take ahead of time to try and reduce their consumption and stave off some of those increases. So there's a big duff of public communication around this, and the couple of initiatives that we've seen from the private sector of trying to advise people on how they can reduce their consumption have been, some of them have been quite ill-judged, and sending socks to people as a way to stay warm didn't go down very well. And of course, there's a lot of public scepticism about energy companies and that they can see the high bills and they assume that they're making high profits, although a lot of the companies in the middle, the utilities in the midstream are being very squeezed by the fact that they're paying very high prices for energy in the wholesale markets. I very much agree, Matt. I think there's been a wider issue here with, and it's, it almost echoes the way energy transition realities have not been discussed by certain policymakers. There's been a failure to come clean with the public about what the cost of this is all going to be and what we're seeing, I think, on the back of Ukraine is sort of microcosm. Same sort of issues are emerging. To come back to this other question about lessons, really, I mean, I guess this is connected with it. Warnings about over-dependence on Russian energy, the EU now trying to reshape energy policy going forward. What are the things it's got to learn from this episode? What are the things it's got to change? What's it really got to make sure it gets right in terms of trying to avoid a repeat of the mistakes that have led us to where we are? I think there's a more immediate lesson, in a sense, that needs to be learned. And that's that the whole framing, if you like, of the discussion about dependence on Russian energy is changing. At the beginning of the war, it was very much about Europe's options. To what extent should Europe restrict oil imports? How should it go about weaning itself off Russian gas in the longer term? Russia's cutting of gas supplies to countries unwilling to switch to its ruble payment system and the recent drop in deliveries through Nord Stream show us that Europe might not have the luxury of choosing how and when to scale back its dependence on Russian gas. And this is something that policymakers need to recognize. And I think, indeed, they are recognizing it quite rapidly now. But it would have seemed quite far-fetched just a few months ago that Russia might be capable of halting supplies to Europe itself rather than waiting for Europe to tell Russia that we don't want your gas anymore. But Russia claims that the West is waging an economic war against it through sanctions and so on. Economic blitzkrieg is the phrase that uh, Vladimir Putin likes to use. And for Moscow, gas is actually a weapon in this war. And it's one that can be used to pressure and to punish Europe for its moral, military, economic support of Ukraine and in retaliation for sanctions against Russia. But with Europe having made it clear that it aims to scale back imports from Russia, the effectiveness of that weapon for Moscow might actually diminish quite rapidly. 
in the months ahead. So from Russia's point of view, why not use that weapon sooner rather than later? And I think that's what we're seeing now. And even if it doesn't come to a, a full shutoff in supplies, I think there are likely to be sporadic and, and unpredictable disruptions and interruptions in supply from Russia. And these will be whatever claim might be made for the reason behind them, they will be part of this conflict. The next lesson perhaps, is, or another lesson, is that having embarked on the path that it's chosen, Europe shouldn't waver, no matter what the outcome of the war is. Calling that outcome is impossible. The war could last for years. Russia might win, even if that victory falls short of its initial goals and is limited to annexation of areas in eastern and southern Ukraine. But either way, there's a risk of the situation that now exists in Ukraine becoming normalized to a degree. And then it might be the case that some European countries start to argue that a more pragmatic approach to Russia is needed, given the economic costs of shunning Russian oil and gas. And even if Russia's ultimately defeated in Ukraine, in the sense of pushed out of Donbass and even Crimea, rather than simply stopped in its tracks at some point, Europe must avoid the temptation to allow a return to the pre-war status quo in its energy relations with Russia. I think that's got to be a key lesson. Whatever the outcome of the war, there can be no going back. We've now experienced just how dependent and how vulnerable we were. And we, we need to draw the appropriate lessons from that. And it's also worth, I think, considering that as Europe tries to pivot away from Russian gas, that it's careful not to create new dependencies with countries that may at the moment be more politically powerful, but who knows in the future what the situation may be. I think we've already got a very low level set of tensions between Spain and Algeria over Morocco. The uh, Algerians decided to stop gas transit through Morocco because of the dispute they're having over the Sahara. And now Spain is uh, offering to make some of its infrastructure available for Morocco to import LNG and to export it by pipeline from Spain to Morocco. And uh, Algeria's made some very bellicose noises about you know if there is a molecule of Algerian gas that is sent to Morocco, then they'll have to consider the entire energy relationship with Spain. And Spain's at pains to make clear that there is no Algerian gas involved in this, but it comes at the worst possible time, given that the overall supply situation in Europe. There's, of course, also the question about the relationship with the United States. Now, I think we saw very clearly under the Trump presidency, that administration had very few qualms about politicizing gas supply to Europe. And at the time, Europe played quite a clever game in terms of presenting all of the policy initiatives that were already underway as if they were a direct response to Trump's overtures and gave the PR win that I think he wanted. But the question comes up in the future, if we substitute dependence on Russian gas for dependence on US LNG, and we end up with another Trump administration in 2024, what's to say that he wouldn't put the kind of pressure on Europe in the same way that he was trying to put the pressure on Ukraine for his own political gain? And so those kinds of dependencies are problematic. And maybe something that the European Union really needs to consider is how do we get out of this cycle of being so dependent on key bits of infrastructure and key bits of the world and on these political relationships that sometimes aren't in, in European interests and other ways of looking to disperse some of the risks in our energy system. There's a lot of talk about the role that hydrogen can play and that renewables can play going forward.
is there a future vision of an energy system where we have much more dispersed generation so that if you have points of failure, whether for technical reasons or political reasons, it doesn't bring down the whole system in the way that uh, this incredible dependence on a single supplier can do. Yeah, that is a sobering perspective, Matt. I have to say that's going to be the policy challenge of the 21st century for Europe, I rather suspect. To end on a portentous note, we should wrap things up there. Matt, John, thank you very much for being part of the discussion today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And if you've got comments or questions on the podcast, please do get in touch through the ArgusMedia.com website. And please keep an eye out for the next podcast in our Markets in Conflict series. Until then, thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye.